0: and welcome to our brand new SCTS education podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking about getting into the specialty from medical school and beyond. The questions have come from medical students themselves, so we very much hope that you find it interesting and enjoy. We're here talking to one of our medical students, Cindy, who's interested in having a career in cardiothoracic surgery. Uh, Simon, who's ST4. Now <laughs> um, in cardiothoracic surgery, and me and I'm an ST7. Uh, my name is Caroline, and I'm one of the cardiothoracic trainees as well. And we're going to have a, a chat about preparing for a career in cardiothoracic surgery, uh, and some of the things that hopefully um, you can do to help yourself on your way. Uh, some inspiration from me and Simon, obviously model cardiothoracic trainees, <laughs> and, uh, and and how how you can uh, hopefully overcome some of the hurdles uh, and, uh, and feel confident in, in your applications. Uh, As well. So um, I'll just uh, introduce you to Cindy, who is a medical student at Liverpool University in her final year um, and is busy organising a training engagement day for cardiothoracics. So tell us a bit about it, Cindy.
1: Yes. So every year, the Society of Cardiothoracic Surgery um, open up applications uh, for different universities to hold the student engagement day. And so um, next year, October-November, um, we will be holding it in Liverpool. It's mm-hmm. a joint Liverpool and Manchester University bid, so we're very excited about that. Just started organising it. We're Excellent. not sure when it will be
0: yet, specific day,
1: but... Okay, um, and it's yeah. to
0: give medical students a bit of an idea of a career in cardiothoracics yes. and uh, some access to cardiothoracic surgeons and so you can yes. ask questions. And, and are there any practical bits and pieces yes. there as well? So,
1: yes, in the morning uh, there are lectures from... A number of different specialties in cardiothoracics and then in the afternoon there's wet labs and mm-hmm. um, we also involve sixth formers oh, um, so it's very exciting. There you go
0: so lots of people can uh, sign up for that when it's advertised. Okay um, so we asked Cindy to go and speak to the members of the Cardiothoracic Surgical Club in Liverpool and Manchester I think as well and yes. um, to, to give us some good questions sort of burning questions that, that maybe you'd want um, me and Simon to hopefully give our deeper meaningful insights into, uh, so <laughs> you came up with some excellent questions um, and we've had a look through and, uh, and we're going to try and um, answer them for you. So uh, the first one that I thought would be sensible was talking about our paths into the specialty. so I don't know if you want to go first, Simon.
2: Uh, okay, thank you. So uh, my name's Simon, as uh, Caroline already said, I'm an ST4, so uh, relatively early on in the specialty training. I went through the ST1 programme which is now becoming um, uh, the the mainstream programme it looks like uh, based on this year's numbers uh, which means that you are basically fast tracked out of medical school through your foundation training straight into specialty training and the advantage of getting in at that point is that uh, you can plan your life around a bit more, you're in one settled place for a longer period of time. Uh, and hopefully you'll have a more tailored training experience from the beginning.
0: And did you want to do cardiothoracics from medical school?
2: Uh, So I uh, knew I wanted to do surgery from about midway through medical school. Uh, I had no idea when I started but realised that uh, it was what I enjoyed the most and cardiothoracics sort of happened because I I had uh, two weeks uh, in cardiothoracics as a medical student, really enjoyed that and then did an elective in it and sort of things just uh, carried on really. I thought it was by far the most interesting and challenging uh, surgical specialty uh, so it, that's what I decided to go for. Mm-hmm.
0: And um, did you do cardiothoracics in F1 and F2 or either
2: or? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, in fact I think it's extremely difficult to get a placement in cardiothoracics during your foundation years because most cardiothoracic units don't typically take on uh, very junior trainees uh, for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's something that we get asked a lot and I think it's something not to worry about because very few of your peers will have had uh, time in the specialty uh, during F1 or F2.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well I had a slightly different course into cardiothoracic surgery. Um, I did When I look back at medical school I can see I was certainly interested and I did uh, uh, a week um, with the paediatric cardiothoracic team Um, in Birmingham Children's, which I thought was fantastic, and that was just something I found interesting at the time, Uh, and I thought it was a pretty amazing specialty from that point of view, very interesting, but I was very aware of what a commitment it was as well at that time. Um, uh, When I look back further in medical school, quite a few of the things that I was interested in were actually cardiothoracic-based, so I did a a project on ECMO, and I'd done a few presentations in uh, just in medical school on on cardiothoracic-type-based Topics, Um, But I didn't really completely decide that I wanted to do cardiothoracics until I was actually in my core surgical training years. Um, I wanted to make sure that I was absolutely certain first, so I did quite a lot of general surgery. I did some orthopedics first um, before I did my cardiothoracic rotation, and I I knew then that I absolutely was prepared to commit to to a career in cardiothoracics. Um, I went into cardiothoracics at ST3, um, because I'm an ST7, so I'm a few years on from some Simon. And, um, and it worked well for me um, but uh, absolutely at the moment I think the trend is more for ST1 level entry but there is uh, definitely options for entry at registrar level. Um, other things I did in between because I, t- I took a slightly projected course, I, went, uh, I did anatomy demonstrating for a year before I applied for my core surgical training just because it was something that I'd really wanted to do in my career and I also spent about eight or nine months on cardiothoracic ITU as a clinical fellow just after I finished my F2 which again gave me some valuable experience because I, I wasn't sure at that time whether it was anaesthetics or cardiothoracics that I was interested in and it, it helped make my mind up. I think we've covered what drew you into cardiothoracics really and I think it's mainly kind of interest from yes. both our sides really. Would
2: you uh, say that? Yes I think uh, for me the main thing was the uh, challenge of the specialty mm-hmm. that it really pushes you to your limits Uh, like uh, no other specialty I can think of, uh, which has its ups and downs, but I think that's what uh, really drew me in. Um, Elaborating on what uh, Caroline's been saying, I do actually agree that uh, it's actually good to keep your options open early on, because what you might uh, enjoy now might change in time, and uh, the problem with the ST1 uh, has always been that uh, it forces you to commit to a specialty very, very early on, uh, and uh, you you may well change your mind at a later stage. Whereas taking the ST3 route allows you to do so without uh, losing as much time or uh, training progress uh, in in doing so. Mm,
0: yeah, so it's good to have both options, and mm. and as we can come on to later, it's always possible to apply for both, so ST1 and core surgical training. Mm. So yeah, yes. th- those things you don't have to actually make a decision. Sometimes decisions are made for you in these <laughs> yes, cases. Um, absolutely. So, uh, so then, uh, just going onto the next one, um, what are the three best and worst things about a career in cardiothoracics? I thought this is another very good question. Yeah,
2: <laughs> it's a tricky one that the uh, students have thought for us. So what I uh, thought of was, I think, the three three worst things first, uh, so we can then uh, go on to the better things. worst things... Uh, one of them is definitely the process of getting in. It's a very competitive process, as I'm sure you already realised, uh, and it will cause lots of stress and headache, but it's, uh, it's, it's no different to any other competitive specialty, and uh, it is doable, as hopefully we'll be able to show you in the, uh, through the course of this podcast. Uh, the other two downsides are the, uh, also quite obvious. One is time commitment. You will spend a lot of your time at work far beyond uh, what you, what you uh, might expect um, and there's no way around it, there's no substitute for it even if you work as hard and as smart as you can, it, you're still going to commit a lot of time to it, which will limit what you, else you can do and that in turn impacts on your personal life potentially, that you have to prioritise work uh, and um, if you're the sort of person who likes to do lots of other things outside, then that will be difficult to balance Um, Thankfully, I'm quite boring, so it made uh, made it a bit easier. And you can become
0: very boring doing cardiothoracics. Exactly. (laughs) Uh,
2: And uh, there is certainly a a balance to be struck there. And it's important not to neglect your personal life, uh, because ultimately it's a long haul that you're in for, and uh, it's your friends and family who are going to uh, keep you going through all that. Now, having said all that, there's lots of positives uh, to balance it out. Uh, In particular, I think... The uh, one thing that uh, I enjoy is the fact that you work as a team very much uh, as a cardiothoracic surgeon, more so than any other surgeon, because uh, uh, all the operations do are uh, interplays between you and the anaesthetist, and you deten- depend heavily on uh, allied health professionals both when operating and also looking after patients afterwards. Uh, so that's that's uh, something uh, that's very good about the career. Also. Uh, I say the the challenge of it um, you do some of the most difficult operations there are you spend many hours working on the sense of satisfaction you get from doing so is is quite uh, immense and even through your training each time you hit a new target each time you do something well uh, it does give you a sense of satisfaction because it's so difficult to start with and then finally it's the it's the sort of overall uh, bird's eye view of the operation itself, you get to do some incredible things that if you describe to any of your non-medical friends, make them really think that you're either amazing or insane, perhaps both at the same time, but you are really pushing the boundaries of what's possible uh, on a daily basis. And sometimes I still have to uh, so think to myself that yes, this is actually happening and th- this is actually what I do for a living. So uh, definitely, so some redeeming features there.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks, Simon. Yeah, um, I I had a, a slightly more practical approach to the worst things of cardiothoracic surgery, <laughs> in that I put bleeding <laughs> as the number one. Um, just uh, it's it's one of those things, and, and nights came as my number two, mm. um, and because these are some of the things that are, are going to cause you stress when you're practically doing the job. Um, the thing with cardiothoracic patients and particularly cardiac patients I'd say is that they can become unstable and they can become unstable at short notice and uh, and that's something you, you have to manage you have to first of all you want to make sure your patients are as good as possible you want to make sure that you, you've absolutely patched them up to the best of your abilities um, but yeah the dread of bleeding is always there <laughs> <laughs> yep. um, you're going to be committed to doing nights for quite a long time really um, and probably that's going to extend more and more into consultant life I mean we see our consultations Consultants coming in overnight for their own patients as well as being on call you are going to be committed to to working outside normal working hours for, for a long time most likely throughout your career particularly if you're thinking along the lines of transplantation aortic surgery anything that involves an um, acute pathology that comes in at uh, all hours um, the other thing is is the lack of food sometimes mm. <laughs> another practical element um you know you, you go through being a doctor and there's even even in early training you know you need to be good at planning your meals if there's anything <laughs> I've learned it's work out when to eat and, and I'm eat still when not you can. Good. eat when you can <laughs> you know and, and try and make sure you've got sensible food in the house it's very easy to fall into bad habits um, you would need to look after yourself. I'm not perfect at that. I'm still, I'm still learning as well. Um, but that's one thing I would say. Uh, be aware of it. It's difficult um, to, to look after yourself sometimes. Um, best bits. I totally agree with Simon. The teamwork. The people. Uh, that's, that's a great thing about cardiothoracics. Uh, that's something that I... Was definitely noticed even when I was doing my medical student placement um, in pediatric cardiothoracics, I was really impressed by how um, people worked together, the MDTs, uh, how focused everybody was on the on different aspects, and how well they communicated. So, uh, I I think that's that's something to aspire to and something to to keep in the specialty. Definitely, um, it's fun actually. Uh, a lot of the time. I really enjoy it, not all the time, admittedly, but I really do enjoy it and that's definitely something that's kept me going through the difficult times as well, which I'm sure there will be plenty more of. Um, But yeah, it's fun, I enjoy working with my hands, I enjoy the practical elements of it, and lastly, the patience. You know, it's great to see people get better, and you know that actually you've done something towards that. Um, and 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 for me, that's that's another thing that really keeps me going in the specialty. So there you go, very good question. Uh, now another practical question: What's the rotor like mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of hours and responsibilities? And and I guess um, we've already touched on the fact that you, you know you, you're going to spend more hours than you is on the rotor. That's mm. that's usually the way of most specialties. Obviously, they are, um, it's important to try and put restrictions on that, make sure people do exception reporting and things like that, and that's very important. But um, there are times when, you know, just through practicalities, and also you own want to, to learn things and to see things, you are gonna end up spending a bit of extra time at work. Um, what do you think about the motor Oh uh, <laughs> yes.
2: uh, I fully agree. The problem is that there is no substitute for time and sometimes you, the learning opportunities are asked for hours after you, uh, your officially rotated hours are over, uh, and some, you just have to make the personal sacrifice uh, in terms of time. The it's very difficult to get training. You just have to put in the hours to do so. Now, having said that, there are limits to it. You still need to take your leave. You still need to uh, have some sort of rest and to make sure that you're safe to work and uh, you'll develop your own sense of how much you can push it, how, how much you can commit to it. But it's definitely one of the specialties where you're going to spend uh, more time than average uh, at work.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's getting better to an extent. Mm. I, I think there's um, more awareness of prioritizing training, trying to work out how to make sure that uh, people who are training in cardiothoracic surgery actually get trained in cardiothoracic mm-hmm. surgery within, within the time, I think there's an awareness that there is a difficulty there um, and, and it's, I'm sure it's possible um, to do in it with also maintaining safe hours. It, it doesn't mean you have to be up 24 hours a day, 7 days a week to do cardiothoracic, that's certainly not the case mm. and it is important to, 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 look, to be responsible f- for your own well-being and safety at work, definitely. Um, which is sometimes more easy said mm. than done, but it is very important. Um, are there any particular questions from you, Cindy, on this? Is there anything that you wonder about our rotors or how we work and things? From yeah.
1: um, Is it, you know, in an average week, is it uh, days? How often do you actually do nights? Mm. Are there any long days? Mm. I don't know.
2: So the, the rotors depend on unit to unit, and it depends on how big the unit is and how many... Uh, registrars are on the rota. The the typical rota tends to be one in eight, so eight people working one rota to get uh, 24-hour coverage, which means that you're going to be doing weekends or night shifts every eighth week, uh, in effect. Uh, and you're in the time that you're not doing weekends nights or have time off after to recover, you'll be on uh, normal working days, some of which you'll have to do on-call work in order to make sure there is 24-hour coverage. Uh, that's probably the most typical route In smaller units uh, you may have more frequent on calls, but they tend to be less busy uh, as a consequence as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah. And it varies from unit to unit how much ITU cover as well there is um, and how direct that is. Uh, um, but, but yeah, generally you're going to spend uh, at least one weekend a month on nights um, or on days on call, aren't mm. you? Um, and and we, ours are split into four nights and three nights. Um, some places do sporadic nights, so you might do like, one one night and then have a day off. It It depends from centre to centre. Um, yeah.
2: But uh, medical rotors are broadly similar across specialties, because there's only so many ways you can arrange and still uh, fulfil all the contractual and legal obligations. Uh, the difference in cardiothoracics tends to be long hours when you're working normal days, um, be as night shifts and weekends are, uh, are work, uh, worked according to the hours.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's useful to point out your night shift responsibilities will be different depending on what level you're at so definitely when you're sort of just starting if you're I'm gonna say ST1 core surgical training it's is most frequently when you'll be in a cardiothoracic unit um, you're probably going to be on, on the wards more than anything um, and uh, and then maybe assisting a bit in theatres from time to time um, and then as you progress up to registrar level you can be sort of more responsible for A&E referrals for being on the intensive care unit and being asked questions from there and then from time to time um, going into theatres we don't tend to spend and all night in theatres very often it's it's not something where like general surgery where you will get lots of referrals you know appendixes, uh, ruptured bowels or whatever um, it's not quite like that yes we might have a night shift where there's a, like an aortic dissection that comes in and then the next night shift might be somebody who's hemodynamically unstable uh, on on the ITU and that takes up your time and the, another another night shift might be a lot of referrals from outside it, it's not the same as general surgery in terms of that but, but there's plenty to keep us busy let's put it that way <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Um, so then uh, another question. Is there anything you particularly do before operating, especially if you know it is a big case? Is there anything you avoid doing beforehand uh, or the night before,
2: for example?
0: So is there anything you av- avoid doing, first <laughs> of all? Simon? I think
2: uh, I think the thing I generally avoid doing is trying to deviate too much from the routine mm-hmm. uh, because what you need, to, especially before a big case, is to be well-rested and... Mentally prepared, and the uh, uh, same way as uh, a lot of athletes will have the same routine the day before the competition, the day of the competition, and uh, even walk up to uh, the start line the same way. I think it's actually sensible to stick to your routine because there's nothing worse than getting nervous and having a poor night's sleep uh, to affect you how you're going to do. Uh, it is obviously worth reviewing the patient, doing some background reading, if it's something unusual you're going to be doing before. Uh, but beyond that, uh, I think the sticking to a uh, routine uh, makes sure that you're mentally pr- as prepared as you can be. Um, one th- one useful technique that uh, someone a long time ago t- told me about uh, is uh, visualization run through where you Think through your operation just as you, just before you're about to start, perhaps while the patient's in the anaesthetic room. You walk through the steps that you're going to do and you imagine how you're going to do it in your mind. Uh, it's a bit quicker than the actual operation. You can probably do the whole operation in about 10-15 minutes that way, but it means that you, you've, you've gone through the operation once already before you actually do it. Uh, and I find that really helps uh, make sure that I don't miss any steps or have to be reminded about things uh, alongside. Um, have you got any tips yeah. like that?
0: Yeah. Well, what I don't do, I don't tend to. Um, I don't tend to drink anything. That's one thing. Mm. I don't tend to have any alcohol before an operating yes. day. That's just a, a rule I have, which occasionally, you know, maybe has been broken, but most of the time, that's that's one of the things I tend to say. Um, the in terms of things that I do. Again, I like to make sure I've gone through all the patient details the day before. Um, I like to feel like I know what we're doing, what we're planning for, and I think that's a general rule for most most people. Um, unless there's some reason you can't, you want to know exactly what you're doing. The morning of the operation is not is not really good enough. You're, you've got too many things to do. There's always something. What if you get stuck in traffic on the way in? <laughs> you're like, yes, I'm going to go in early. There will be something that happens. So it's much better to to have a good idea the night before, or or even even better still if you can a few days before, if you if you're able to prepare that early for a list. Um, Other things that I tend to do, I keep a little note on my phone now. I've found different ways of doing it over the years, and this seems to be the most effective way for me. I've got um, sort of written transcripts of the operations, basically, for particular consultants. And um, what this means is that some people do things in different ways to other people. And it can make a difference when you go in there. If you start preparing, lifting the pericardium in a way that's actually different to how they usually do it, then people start thinking, oh, I don't know, can they remember my way? You know. Mm. So I like to have my reference of ah, oh, okay, I don't even have to think about that because I've written it down, I can read it, and I remember it. Um, so I, I tend to have that in a little in a little in notes on my phone so I can check it. And then each time I try and update it with something new from that operation so if there's a if the, I, i've not noticed one element of the operation before because when you're doing things there are things that the consultant might do that you might not even recognize the first few times you're you're in there um and, and as you then start doing more and more yourself you realize these little techniques which actually help um help the procedure so um so yeah i, I try and write those things down and then the day before or even in the morning when i'm sitting down there and i'm sort of trying to go through things in my mind either before or, or, or on the day, um, then then I've got that there that makes me feel a bit better. <laughs> makes me feel like, oh, okay, yes, I remember that important point, or, oh, I'm, I should always cut that there, or that's why they do this. So, so I find that quite useful. Um, the other thing that I try and do to prepare for operations now, which I've done over the years, but I, I think I'm sort of getting better at doing it, is I tend to draw diagrams. So I have little bits that sort of are, are okay, so this is where so-and-so starts their anastomosis. This is where I like to start my anastomosis. This is what um, the sort of general structure I'm aiming for once I finish a uh, 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 yeah, root replacement or something like that um, and I tend to have that drawn out so so I can have the salient points in my mind I find that helpful I think the visualization thing is very helpful and I've heard a, a lot of people also find that helpful too. So <laughs> I think
2: uh, you can deduce this. there's there's a few uh, things that people pick up mm-hmm. no one starts off knowing exactly you what their routine is you pick up you learn things you might find things that work for you uh, that don't for others and vice versa Uh, But most people tend to find things that help uh, and uh, stick with it. Mm -hmm. Excellent.
0: Okay, so now uh, the juicy bit advice on how to get in <laughs> how to cry um, so uh, i'm I just going to go through quickly the different stages of training because you know not everybody when you're at medical school has a clue as to what happens afterwards um, and sometimes it, you know you, you don't think about it necessarily uh, so you, you finish your medical school um, and you go through your foundation year before you get fully registered to the gmc and then you do f2 at which point you have the opportunity to apply for some sort of further medical training be it psychiatry gp or surgery or even specialty training which includes cardiothoracics neurosurgery ENT, I don't know, I think ENT have got one as we well now. Started, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so there's lots, so there's that So there's that point of entry. You can apply for core surgical training and then apply for a subspecialty training, such as cardiothoracics at a higher level, which is at registrar level. So there are several different entry points, well, two main entry points, ST1 and ST3. And as Simon mentioned earlier, ST1 is becoming the greater number of entry applicants. There are certainly plenty of people who do a year of core surgical training and then decide, ah, actually I'd quite like to do cardiothoracics. And then rather than waiting to ST3 level, might drop out of core surgical training at S- uh, CT1 and then a- apply for an ST1 in cardiothoracics. And and that's certainly been done. Um, so so there are a variety of different ways and, and there's different points when the doors can open for
2: you. The, the key thing to bear in mind about the ST1 application, though, there is a hard limit on how much uh, post foundation year surgical experience you are allowed uh, to still be eligible to apply for ST1 which means that you can do as many surgical rotations as you want during your foundation years that's not counted once you finish your foundation year if you do go on to to core surgical training or you do a surgical non-training job there is an 18 month limit on that if you do more than 18 months uh, you will no longer be eligible to apply for ST1 and you can only apply for ST3 at that point. Uh, so you have to be just mindful of that when you plan your career uh, and uh, work around that. So as a core surgical trainee, you're eligible to apply as a CT1. Uh, it's not a problem at all. In fact, I do believe from my year cohort that most people were core surgical trainees because that extra year gives you a big advantage in terms of... Things that you can do. Um, but once you're CT2, you start getting very close to that 18 month limit, and you may have to resign your post early if you really, really intend on ST1. Having said that, that's obviously putting a lot of eggs into one basket, so uh, the, the, the time limit is something you need to keep in mind when planning ahead.
1: Is the 18 months in any type of surgery, in cardiothoracic surgery specifically?
2: It says cardiothoracic or, or relevant surgical specialties. So it's kept deliberately vague, and mm-hmm. I believe that people have generally assumed it to mean surgical specialties, okay. uh, just to be on the safe side.
1: And um, if you do have a- any surgical job, um, is there sort of a number of procedures that you're expected to have... Done in say six months or 12
2: months. So, when it comes to application time, one of the uh, forms you have to fill out during the application is to uh, is to log how many procedures you've done, and that is not just cardiothoracic procedures, it's actually mainly general surgery because that's the special most likely that people are most likely to have done during their early training. And the, once again, the markings kept very vague. There is an expectation that you will have done some. Things that you'll have developed some skills, and if you can stand out from your peers with how much you've done uh, relative to how long you spent, then that will get you extra points.
0: Um, so the other thing we need to mention now that we're talking about the getting into the training program is the matrix, uh, which <laughs> is a system of um, scoring, which uh, which helps guide you as to uh, or guide the the interviewers and the um, people assessing the shortlisting scores for the application. But it's pretty intimidating yes, so when you
2: have the, a look at it. The bar is <laughs> set extremely high, certainly if you <laughs> yeah. want the uh, top level of scores in each uh, domain. Mm. The Matrix is publicly available on the Wessex Deanery website, because the Wessex Deanery runs the national selection uh, on behalf of Health Education England. Uh, it is not a secret document, uh, it's not secret criteria being scored against, it's all... On there, and I would highly recommend to anyone uh, to print it off and keep a copy of it uh, around, and then to go through it in detail because some of them are some of the uh, <laughs> them are very difficult. Uh, I mean, I can't think of anyone who has had. National, international level attainment in sports or the arts. I think there might uh, have been
0: one bloke in my year, but I think he might have left Cardiff for us Well, to, to become a full-time professional yeah, athlete, perhaps possibly, I don't know.
2: So, so the the criteria, however, the the difficulty level is very uneven. So you get uh, three points for studying uh, for a PhD, committing three years of your life, getting a PhD gets you three points. Uh, which is exactly the same number of points as you get for uh, leading an audit, uh, showing uh, which includes evidence of impact on clinical practice uh, and uh, sustained commitment uh, to that project. So, which is something that's probably a lot easier for uh, for most of us uh, than than getting the uh, national international attainment in sports certainly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Speak for yourself, Simon. Anyway <laughs> So so yes, the, the matrix itself, there's one for S T three as well and I'm I imagine it's on the same
2: It's similar same page. but the criteria are yeah. harder and there's a couple more extra domains as well. Yeah,
0: so there's But the the aims of them is is to make sure that they are, and one of the reasons the clinical audit is scored in that high level compared to the PhD, is because they are looking for you to have had involvement in clinical practice, and that's a priority. They want good doctors to form good surgeons. Um, And so don't concentrate too much on the uh, international achievement in sport, which uh, those of you who've got it, congratulations we applaud you we really truly do but um, but don't worry there are other options for those of us who don't so so don't be too daunted by it look at what you have got rather than what you haven't got on
2: what you can do in medical school though, there are several uh, domains uh, which are directly undergraduate related and obviously once you've left medical school you'll never be able to achieve those so if you look on there there are uh, criteria for undergraduate research audit and prizes so if you get any of those that's a big bonus and once again once you've graduated you can't uh, get any of that and there's actually uh, two points on uh, up for grabs for undergraduate clinical electives and attachments so by showing interest early uh, doing uh, an elective and a couple of attachments you can score two points which is not inconsiderable given mm. the total score is only 40. Uh, And uh, very few people score more than 70% uh, with the average, uh, well this is hearsay, but I I do believe the average uh, minimum level required for interviews is about 55% Mm -hmm. uh, most years. So they're not looking for 100% and uh, two marks will go a long way when the total is only 40.
0: Good point, very good point. Um, I've got down here as well, um, Cindy you were mentioning yesterday that you've been part of a basic surgical skills course and, and I understand that's something that's available to medical students, I think that's a very good thing to, to go along to. Um, when you're in, when you're in uh, hospitals, go to theatres, <laughs> see what people do, um, be part of operations if you possibly can. Um, I, people may, at uh, different placements, may have different rules about scrubbing for medical students. We were able to moons ago when I was in medical school, but I'm not sure if that's universally uh, possible. But if you can get your hands on and your hands in, that's fantastic. The other thing I would say is some places have anatomy clubs, and if you can get involved in teaching other medical students anatomy or expanding that, great. That's all very relevant to surgery. Um, projects, if there are particular projects which involve things related to cardiothoracics, great, or just general surgery, great. Um, things like A&E, very good for knots and suturing, mm. and go to conferences, that's the other thing. Conferences like the one, you're running Cindy, uh, in Liverpool and Manchester uh, later this year. Um, but yeah, things that, that um, there are access for medical students at conferences as well, so it's worth, uh, worth looking at that and they can be quite discounted as well, you don't have to pay the hundreds of pounds.
2: Mm. In terms of the uh, extracurricular activities, mm. uh, a lot of people are quite worried that they have to spend every waking moment tying knots or learning to suture but I, I don't think that's uh, really the way to uh, go about it because uh, you're not going to uh, have a very good time uh, trying to do that for several years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's you, it's important to have things that you enjoy outside of work uh, and that can be anything from travelling to spending time with friends. but. One thing to bear in mind is, to, if you, is if anything you do and you enjoy doing can be turned into a plus point, uh, then try and think about that early. If you enjoy playing football with your friends, great. Uh, if you can uh, be part of a uh, local team or university team, uh, then even better because that's something that shows that you can uh, commit to something, you can keep working on it and improve yourself at it. Uh, similarly, if you like running, uh, entering into races, uh, it, raising money for charity, doing so uh, will also certainly help uh, with your application. There's no, I would definitely advise against taking up a activity for the sake of uh, points. Uh, it's important that you actually enjoy it. But mm-hmm. if you do enjoy something, uh, it pays to be canny about it and try and make it work in your, uh, to your benefit.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's really useful to have extracurricular things that you enjoy not least because it's a really good stress reliever Mm. actually and it's very easy when you're trying to focus on getting into something or your career to kind of forget about other things and actually as we were saying like you end up kind of boring doing kind (laughs) because it does take away quite a lot of your life but um in a good way mostly um but but it's very useful to keep extracurricular activities going not least to to, to have a bit of balance and to have something else going on outside and i suspect that that's something that they do look for a little bit in the applications is that they're looking at you as a human being and that you're a colleague, future colleague, and that you are somebody, would you like that person operating on you? Or would you like that person to be at the end of the bed? And having all those sort of elements of of a little bit of a life outside certainly helps and keeps you a bit more grounded. So there's lots of ways it can be relevant and and you can make it relevant. Um, We've kind of touched on this one before. Do you need a post in cardiothoracic surgery in F1, F2? Think, yeah, it's very mm. difficult to get what I don't think they exist anymore. Actually. Uh,
2: I think they are very yeah. rare, but they're they're very uh, they do. There's very few of them. What I would advise is to um, get a use your taster weeks. Mm. So uh, your foundation program has to give you taster weeks both during F1 and F2, uh, and which allow you a week off your normal job to go into another specialty uh, and uh, spend a week there. And those can be really really useful both to see what working in that specialty is really like and also it gives you a chance to get to know the people there so that once you've done your Taster Week, you can go back and you know people's names and you can get involved, uh, go back to theater with them or, or do research projects with them. Uh, you may not be able to do multiple Taster Weeks in Cardiothoracics. They, I think they might uh, uh, only allow you one week per specialty but you can do uh, Taster Weeks in similar related specialties as well so do you make uh, full use of those while you're in foundation year?
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, uh, and so what if you can't have a placement in cardiothoracic surgery, then there's lots of other things you can do, um, like I've put down the shadowing element of things, also cardiology, if, if there's a, a, a placement in cardiology you can do as a F1, F2, that's probably going to be complementary. Um, Trauma get involved with anything mm. in A and E, um, chest drains, things like that. Um, you can still get mm. get practice doing. Um,
2: and on that note, I would say that uh, in fact, as an F1 and F2, you're going to get more learning out of uh, general surgery placement typically than a cardiothoracic placement, yeah. because if you're lucky and uh, efficient, you may well start uh, operating a bit, doing small things like uh, hernias and. Uh, abscesses, hopefully start get started on appendic, appendicectomies, uh, because the uh, unfortunate reality is there are no small operations in cardiothoracics, mm. but there very much are uh, in other specialties, uh, and these are all skills which are directly transferable. Uh, it's no different uh, cutting open the abdomen as it is doing a thoracotomy in terms of the skills you need. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. And the other thing that I always think is important for um, getting
2: involved in things in F1, F2
0: is make yourself useful. I've said this to Cindy already, but if you are around, even if you, you're doing the simple things, the little things that make life tick by more easily, pop in the catheter room, making sure the patient's cannulated, making sure that you have checked their medications or you've seen them preoperatively and you can present them to your consultant. All these things make a difference. Mm. They make people think, oh, this person's actually interested, which mm. is which you wouldn't, you'd be surprised, but when people come up to you and they clearly have no idea what the patient is, they, they just expect things to be coming their way, it, it shows, mm. it shows, and it makes a big difference if people are involved, if they actually show a bit of care about the patient. That's great. <laughs> and not
2: many, and yeah. you'd be surprised, not many people do it. Yeah. It's really noticeable mm. uh, when people do. You, so, you do stand out.
0: Small amount of effort, lots mm. of enthusiasm, mm. get involved, and you'd be amazed at how many doors open for you. Okay, um, so uh, there's a good question here. Is core surgical training or specialist training better? <laughs> well
2: Well... I- there's pros and cons to each. Uh, I think we covered that in the introduction. Really, uh, the advantage of specialty training directly, ST1, is that you uh, have uh, you're in one place for a bit longer. You can plan your training a bit better, but you commit to a specialty much earlier. Whereas with core surgical training, you've still got uh, a few. Uh, you've got more options uh, still open to you. Uh, you, you can apply for both in the same application cycle, and there is absolutely no reason not to, uh, to be quite honest. You do have to go to both interviews, but th- that's fine. Uh, and these days, with the uh, online application system, it's actually quite uh, straightforward to apply for two sort of virtually simultaneously. Uh, if you and then if you get if you're lucky enough to get offers for both then mm-hmm. you've got a bit of a dilemma on your hands but I'm not sure many people really uh, worry about it's, that. It's a good problem to have exactly yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> okay so yeah and I'd say this, I think I think I, if I was in that situation I think I'd probably apply for both mm. um, and see and see what what up. out <laughs> yeah. yeah. um, so the next thing uh, do you have any tips on how to carry out audit projects research for surgery and how to get them? published, or accepted as publications?
2: Ooh. Ooh. Always <laughs> oh. oh, a question that gets asked, yeah. asked because uh, this, uh, the magic publications are what yeah. Pe- yeah. people get very stressed about. <laughs> yes. Now, the first thing that I would say is uh, publications aren't the end of the world. Uh, the maximum number of points you can get for that is three uh out
0: of 40. You might as well do a PhD really. <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly
2: well a PhD will get you covered on both. Yeah there you go just <laughs> but, do a PhD uh, folks. No, don't. <laughs> yeah don't, don't do that uh, unless you want to do a PhD in which case yeah, that's which case fine. It, yeah. um, but publication wise don't get too hung up about it. If you can get them great if you can't it doesn't mean that you'll never get a job. Mm. The way to go about them is very is daunting to start with and it tends to get easier with practice the more you mm. The more research you do, the less daunting it gets, the more straightforward it seems. Uh, there, there is no magic bullet, otherwise, we'd all have stacks of publications. <laughs> but I think the, the tips I would have is uh, don't focus exclusively on cardiothoracics. Um, publica- it uh, publications of any sort in other specialties count too. So if a good opportunity comes along in another specialty, I, I know of someone who's got a very good publication in vascular surgery journal. It counts just as much. Um, uh, you, if you can find a productive department or consultant or registrar who has published lots in the past, then it's a good sign that uh, if you work hard with them, you'll be able to get something going. It's very difficult to do everything yourself, especially early on in your career. So you need uh, to work hand-in-hand with someone. Uh, who has experience Uh, and then the other key thing is to be proactive and reliable Um, unfortunately the fate of most research projects is to stagnate and peter out uh, due to lack of time lack of enthusiasm uh, lack of expertise maybe but uh, if you can uh, be proactive and reliable and make sure that you keep pushing the project forward the next if you even if one project doesn't succeed uh, the people you're working with will remember that you are someone they really want to get involved uh, and hopefully uh, it will pay off in the end.
0: Yeah, I, I think um, one of the key things is trying to, when you're finding projects, trying to make sure that you genuinely have the time to do it mm. because I know I've taken on huge projects in the past, probably re- re- foolishly really, I've not even realised how big they were mm. um, and what you really want, I remember one of my orthopaedic consultants actually saying at one stage is you want a simple, good question, mm. I've always found that quite difficult, <laughs> I yeah. tend to be not simple and, and expansive and that's that's not a great combination um, I remember going to one of my uh, when I was doing anatomy, demonstrating, showing my professor at the time, the project I'd been working on um, in an earlier and he said crikey, this is like a master's and I I, mm. I realised then that I'd probably taken on too much and, yes. and, and I think that's a, that's a big issue. So so try and uh, make sure you can do it in the time, it's feasible. Run it past senior people. If you're not sure, run it past people that you trust their opinion and they have actually produced things in the past. I think that's very, very helpful. Um, and take feedback. You might you know, send these things off, and it comes back and people give you various, we won't accept it because of X, Y, and Z. Well, have a look at it. It doesn't mean the end of the world. You can submit it to other places after you've made changes or even to the same place after you've made changes. So don't be too perfectionist about it as well. You know, take the feedback and work out what, what you can do to improve. Um, and do put it you're interested in. That's another key thing because that's less chance of it petering out. <laughs> then. Okay, uh, another question. Is it ever too late to consider a career in cardiothoracic surgery? Mmm. good question. I'm
2: not sure. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to be controversial and say yes, but it's very late indeed yeah. to, to qualify it. Yeah. Uh, it's a long training programme and uh, it's a tough training programme. So you have to think to yourself whether you want to be spending nights uh, on call as a registrar. Uh, and at one point, uh, your priorities in life change. Uh, it's certainly, certainly being a mature student uh, shouldn't put you off. Uh, certainly having a a, going into it after trying out other specialties shouldn't put you off Uh, we actually have colleagues here who have uh, had careers in other um, non-medical areas and then gone to medical school and then uh, gone to cardiothoracics is entirely possible Uh, and there is no penalty in the selection process for doing so Uh, I think the limiting factor is actually personal Uh, it's uh, sort of where, at what point do you think to yourself is it worth devoting upwards of 10-15 years of your life uh, to being trained uh, and uh, the sort of laborious training process in it and if you if you think that you're prepared for it then there shouldn't be a cap on it because of how old you are.
0: Yeah I agree so I, I think you're right it's, it's, it is a personal choice and it's perfectly possible to start cardiothoracics later in life or later in your career after you've had another career that's absolutely possible we know many many people who've done that um but it's where it's whether you want to and that's the choice which which really helps with the shadowing and the getting experience of the specialty and you know what if you drop out, it's not the end of the world, you know? Sometimes you try things, they're not for you, you move on. And even with cardiothoracics, I mean, we're mainly cardiac side, um, but the th- the thoracic side has huge options as well and actually can be a bit more flexible in some ways, um, depending on what elements you go into. So so yeah, not too late, but, um, but go in with your eyes open. Okay, interesting question again why is it that there are only 12 training numbers nationwide to fill every year and then there's no guarantee of a consultancy <laughs> job? Yes, uh, thank you for reminding us we may not get a job. Thank you. This, no. this is also
2: a question that gets asked to uh, to the consultant panel by oh. the trainees uh, frequently as well. Along
0: with, please give me a job. Yes, yeah, yeah. that yeah. as well, we'll work for food.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, The the reality is cardiothoracics is a small specialty. Uh, There are only about 300 consultants in total in the whole country, Uh, so it is a small specialty which means we're never going to need as many trainees as general surgery or orthopaedics will. Uh, Now, they do try their best to match the number of trainees they let in at the beginning with the number of consultants who are projected to retire and any new jobs that are created. Unfortunately, it's a very inexact science. It's more black magic than science. And more often than not, it goes wrong. And there tends to be cycles where there's mismatches. Uh, every few years, there's too many uh, trainees, not enough consultant jobs. And then a few years later, there'll be not enough trainees. And in the panic to adjust for it, it tends to oh, the uh, powers that be tend to over adjust it. And so you end up with fluctuations. Now that's not going to be any consolation of someone who's at the end of their training looking for a consultant job, uh, but uh, at the end of the day there will still be consultant jobs available, the competition for them might be very intense, uh, but so is the competition to get into the specialty, so uh, although it's uh, unfortunate, it's uh, sort of the reality of what we have to live with.
0: Uh, I think that's part of life as well in mm. lots of different careers. So. I think more and more, there's there's not a job for life anymore, is there, really? Um, and many people in many different careers will be facing the same concerns at, at, and at different points in their careers. And, and so I don't think it's something that's exclusive to cardiothoracic surgery. I think whatever you do... They, the the, is it Darwin who says about the species the most adaptable are the ones who survive (laughs) and I think that's an element of that in in careers as well everywhere so you you do have to be a bit uh, have a bit of foresight think about what you want to do and then be able to say okay this may not be exactly what I planned but that's okay and you can you can then adapt and change your plans so even if you get to the end of your career and there's no massive jobs opening then there's options for fellowships Mm. there's options for all sorts of further training so uh, and and one of the advantages of being a doctor is that you've got a sort of an, an international pool to a certain extent. So, uh, so yes, yeah, there there's, there are options out there, and it's um, it's not a be all and end all. Um, knowing you have know, finished training, and there's not immediately a consultant job. Mm. Sometimes it's actually good to have a little bit of wider exper- experience as well. Um, sorry, yeah, go ahead, Cindy. I sorry,
1: an, I just had an added question. Yeah, yeah. Um, so everybody does talk about the matrix and how to get an interview, but once you actually get an interview. What can you expect in the interview? What, is, what do they test you on? What, what sort of stations are there? Uh,
2: so all medical interviews are now very heavily regulated and have to be very objective. The, what I would say is that uh, I wouldn't worry about it too early. Uh, you're going to do a lot of interview preparation going up to it and preparation is key to doing well in it. Uh, and for that it's also very helpful to know your local department because you'll find that when you tell them that you're going for a selection and they've known you before they'll be very happy to help and very happy to give you mock interviews and prepare and the juniors will tell you what their interviews were like um, but uh, I wouldn't worry about it at too early in stage
0: yeah and there's good books and courses mm. so there's a book that I think uh, most people have read for their <laughs> applications via ST1, ST3, consultancy, there are versions of it, and that's the ISC uh, Medical Applications, it's something called like that, something like that, um, and they run courses as well, and there are courses that go on yearly, specifically for course surgical training, specialty training, all sorts of th- th- things, and, and they're very useful for giving advice on how to phrase your answers, because a lot of this, and it's no different, again, it's very similar to all jobs, okay, and all the things they're looking at, interviews, is communication skills, teamwork, leadership, and how you come across um, yourself. So, so that framework that the book has is gives you an introduction to that kind of thing. So when it comes to that sort of time, those are the, those are the things to pick up, and, and you can absolutely ask your seniors as well, because they they'll have gone through it all very recently. Um, so yes, there are lots of resources out there that help you. So next up, um, we've got some uh, general career questions I've put them under the title <laughs> of um, and uh, and these are sort of, again, very interesting questions quite well, controversial at times controversial, yeah. we're pushing the envelope all yeah. right? so one of these questions is are interventional cardiology taking over? Dun, dun, yeah. dun. I think this is
1: this is very much on the view that, you know, cardiothoracics is dying out, mm-hmm. um, I mean the surgery. Um, and <laughs> <Yeah. now. laughs> Thankfully not the surgeons yet. Because yes. <laughs> interventional, interventional cardiology and what they do now is amazing and yep. they're sort of taking over, pretty yep. much.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, so I think this is a really interesting question and it's something that is repeated over decades and decades and decades. Mm-hmm. So I was being told the same things when I was applying, um, you know, and, and when I was even going to you know, medical school um, over 10 years ago now. <laughs> um, so, so yes, this is a, a, a constant sort of background. And the fact is that cardiothoracic surgery is still here. In particular, cardiac surgery is still here because that's the thing really threatened by those interventional cardiologists, <laughs> um, and the truth is we all work well together actually, um, and there's space for the interventional cardiologists and there's space for the surgeons, and there's patients that are suitable for one thing, and there's patients that are suitable from the other, and that really is um, picked apart by the trials and the research, and also your clinical judgment as well.
2: So, uh, you may have heard there was a moratorium, so a complete stop in cardiothoracic training, So. New trainees were no longer being taken on in the mid-2000s. That was in response to what we thought was going to be the death of the specialty. All that caused was a massive disaster towards the end of the 2000s when there weren't enough consultants uh, or trainees finishing with their CCT ready to be consultant and the UK had to hire a lot of overseas doctors to fill those posts. This question has been around for nearly 20 years now. The scary part is some medical students listening to this will be uh, born after stents became popularized, mm. and it's been a, pro- a question ever since. Mm. Uh, and I think the fact that we're still talking about it shows that yes, it's a fear, but it's an unfounded one because the number of cases that we are doing is actually increasing rather than getting less. Uh, in part aided by older, unhealthier population, uh, okay. but the the fact is that the interventional cardiologists aren't taking over. We both specialists are growing side by side, uh, and learning how to work together, but uh, depending on what the patient needs really.
0: Yeah, I think one of the more recent advances in interventional cardiology and surgery, because these are things that are done together, is things like TAVI, which are transcatheter valves. Um, and there's certainly a move towards certain patients who would previously maybe have operated on um, for aortic valve stenosis um, to undergo transcatheter valves rather than surgical open valves. Um, and originally these populations were in essentially inoperable patients, patients who would be too high risk for surgery and then that threshold has gradually crept down into patients who are high risk for surgery and now it's sort of creeping down and depending on which country you're in <laughs> um, will depend on, on whether you, you might Firstly, go for a transcatheter valve. Um, now in the UK uh, this has been pretty well regulated in terms of introducing the new technology um, and which I think is a really good and very positive thing for the UK um, and we have limits on who we refer and how we refer them and who's suitable and what this means is hopefully we'll have really good, really good outcomes for both groups. So when the people who are suitable for transcatheter valves, super outcomes it's appropriate for them, and people who are suitable for surgical valves they'll have the most appropriate operation for them and they'll have great outcomes. Um, I suspect over the next few years we'll see a fluctuation in who those people are and in which group in exactly the same way that's happened for PCI or stenting versus coronary artery bypass grafts and we'll come to the same situation where there'll be a discussion about certain patients in MDTs which to be fair already happens, Mm. Uh, we already do that.
2: Um, And that leads nicely on to our next question, which is should cardiothoracic surgeons be trained in interventional cardiology Mm -hmm. uh, and I assume interventional radiology skills, Mm -hmm. Uh, to which I'd say perhaps, but you'd have to fundamentally change training or create a subspecialty because it's difficult enough uh, to fit uh, all the training you need into the time we have and I think that's been part of why uh, cardiothoracics hasn't adopted uh, interventional skills the same way that vascular surgery has uh, because their training has fundamentally changed mostly because they now do so much less general surgery and that time is now devoted to catheter skills. Uh, so I think uh, there are no plans afoot to change things dramatically. Uh, but. Um, Adaptability is uh, very important and if uh, technology does change, if practice does change, and I'm sure the specialty change with it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there are are ways that surgeons have adapted to um, develop interventional cardiology skills, mainly at the moment it's post completion of training and as consultancy. And for example, I would again say about transcatheter valves. So here, and I think in many other centres, the actual transcatheter valve programme was jointly initiated with surgeons and cardiologists. And then the femoral, femoral transcatheter valves have really been taken over by the cardiology team because they actually do the, the more wire skills and more access with femoral valves, it makes sense. Whereas transapical valves, which is when you actually make an incision in the chest wall and then you insert the valve through the apex of the heart, that is something that which very much has been led by the surgical team in conjunction with the cardiologist. So there are ways that people have used things like transcatheter valves, but in, in different ways and developed that skill to whichever best suits the patient and um, so that, that, does, that does happen and that is something that you can train in, in in cardiothoracic surgery at the moment that tends to be a post-CCT option for you. Um, the other thing is internationally there are certainly cardiothoracic surgeons or maybe cardiovascular surgeons would be a more appropriate term to use who are trained in interventional cardiology particularly on the continent um, it's not particularly usual but it's possible, and it's certainly one of the things if you wanted to have a placement with somebody and see how it works, you can look that sort of thing up. I think Germany is a quite common place for that to happen, um, but uh, but yeah, there certainly are people out there doing it and doing that successfully, so it doesn't mean you can't, it just means the training structure here is not quite facilitating it. Um, we'll see what happens in the future, most likely there will be an element of, of change with that. Okay, which comes to how has the specialty changed? <laughs> And how do we expect it to change in the future? Well, we've kind of touched a little bit on the on potential wire skills and things like that. Um, mm. I suppose the other thing is minimally invasive surgery, robotic surgery, um, trying to do things through smaller holes, um, really to facilitate patient recovery. Uh, I think that's going to be one of the key elements. Mm. Um, what do you think?
2: Uh, yes, <laughs> uh, so I think technological change uh, will happen and cardiothoracics tends to be at the forefront of that. Uh, We tend to adopt uh, new things pretty quickly and uh, the key thing there is that once you become a consultant your training isn't over, there's a continuous uh, process of adopting new practices, keeping up to date with developments and uh, at the moment uh, here in Liverpool there's been a successful introduction of robotic surgery uh, and that's started at the consultant level who've had to go through a formal training programme and proctorship. Uh, and they are uh, progressing well from that point of view so no matter what stage you are at your career it is a continuous uh, developing process and that's uh, certainly a good thing and something that really attracted me to the specialty. Uh, My, I think, key specialty change uh, that I want to highlight is uh, the sort of people who are cardiothoracic surgeons Uh, There'll be, I think, increasingly more women in cardiothoracic surgery. There's already more women entering into training and that will filter through as the years go by. Uh, The selection process is now more objective. It's centralised. And uh, certainly the the old boys' network uh, no longer exists. Uh, Everyone has to go through the same selection process uh, and and it is very, very fair. Uh, And I think that will really change the sort of people you're going to work with, and I think it will change it for the better. Uh, So I think that's one of the key things that's going to be different in the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that's worth mentioning of how the specialty has changed is probably surgeon specific data. Mm-hmm. So maybe f- over over ten years ago now um, that was introduced, which is monitoring of surgeons according to specific operative outcomes, um, and that's all adjusted as per something called the Euroscore, which is a way of um, making sure that you're kind of putting all patients on the same baseline. People will argue whether that's a good or a bad thing and, and how fair that is, <laughs> but, but ultimately it's meant that we've been able to do some sort of standardised surgical reporting and uh, that has been a difficult introduction initially because it it makes people feel a bit like they're being examined Um, from the outside it puts quite a lot of stress and pressure on people but ultimately it's in the patient's interest and I think we've or kind of become part of the specialty whereas where this has become more and more normalised, it's becoming more normalised in other specialties as well. Mm. Um, and ultimately I perceive it's a bit of a safeguard for my own practice really? actually, um, and I certainly want to know if, if, if my results were getting getting poor, so, so I don't think it's anything to particularly fear, I think it's something that's going to be part of everybody's surgical practice in the future, um, we can make of it what we want. Um, and uh, but it but it is it's, it's something important that, that has changed and has changed um, the attitudes in some some, some people.
2: But and yeah, cardiothoracic has definitely led the way for that. Mm. Uh, last year, the Royal College Surgeons advised all surgical specialties to adopt uh, patient uh, to adopt surgeon-specific outcome reporting, which is uh, logistically more difficult in some specialties than others. But uh, everyone is heading towards that way, and by being ahead of the curve. Uh, it inspires faith in the public and it also uh, um, means that uh, we've had time to adapt, adapt to it and uh, I think, uh, as Caroline said, it, if you enter the specialty now, it is now the standard which means that uh, uh, it's it's less uh, of a nerve-wracking pressure to live with mm. because it's always been this way. Mm, yeah.
0: Always always under the microscope. It's yes. fine. You get used to it. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, now on to uh, another very good question we've touched on a little bit, uh, which is work life balance and does it exist? Mm.
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah. But it's heavily weighted towards the uh, work side <laughs> yeah. of that balance.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I think this is something that I've probably got a little bit better at the more I've gone through, um, and that's because you have to, <laughs> because you ultimately get to a point where you need a bit of life, um, and, uh, and 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 certainly for me, I get very absorbed in things that I'm enjoying, and actually, I really enjoy my work. I really enjoy being a doctor. I really, the vast majority of the time, um, it's important to have a bit of life whatever your definition of that is, and I think that's different for lots of people, and um, mm. one person's version of what having a life is is different to somebody else's. Um, I think it's really important to see your friends, your family from time to time, make sure you check in, um, and uh, and to probably do a bit of physical exercise. Those would be my main tips, I would <laughs> eat, I have mentioned that a couple mm. of times already. Um, but, yeah, you can you can get some balance. It's important to have some balance. Um, yeah. Maybe balance is the w- wrong word. Maybe a fraction needs to be <laughs> life.
2: <laughs> now, having said that, the, it's important to uh, make sure your own well-being doesn't get neglected uh, in all this. So uh, staying healthy, uh, keeping a healthy diet and uh, doing some exercises uh, is actually very important because you're going to be working for a very long time uh, I'm not sure whether any of us will ever get a pension uh, at the rate that things are <laughs> nah. going um, so you're in it for the long haul and it's, it's no good devoting every moment uh, of, your wake, of your waking life to working uh, and neglecting everything else you do have to uh, make sure that uh, you have um, other things to live for other than work no matter how much you enjoy work as well uh, and it is entirely possible um, certainly in, Uh, My cohort of uh, trainees, we've had three new dads recently, Mm -hmm. uh, almost at the same time. We apparently was not planned, but (laughs) it just turned out that way. Uh, People do lead normal lives. um, And uh, I I think it's very important uh, to have that uh, to keep you grounded uh, while you work as well.
0: Yeah, and make you you want to be able to relate to your patients at the end of the day as well, um, and so so it's helpful to be a human being um, on the on the other side of, 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 uh, of things. So um, that also brings us a little bit on to a, a, a female specific question here, which is what is it like to work in a specialty that's still male dominated? Um, balance work life as a woman in surgery, and I think for most women in surgery, um, we. We kind of don't particularly think of ourselves as women in surgery. You kind of just think of yourself as a surgeon, um, and uh, and so. It, but as you as you get older, as you kind of progress through, it does become a bit more of an issue, <laughs> um, because you know, so like there's new dads, there's new mums who are cardiothoracic surgeons, um, and it is difficult. And I think that's one of the main questions that people really have is um, how possible is it to have a family um, and be a cardiothoracic surgeon? Um, and I think uh, I've not personally had any children so it's difficult for me to comment on that but from friends of mine who have um, in different specialties as well as this one um, I think I think no matter when you have kids it's gonna be tough it's gonna be tricky mm. I think it depends on having a good partner and a good support network um, and I think probably that's relevant for male and female <laughs> thoracic surgeons maybe you know it, things like maternity leave definitely ask around seek help seek support from people there's loads of people who can answer questions for you when you when, if you if you need to about that um, both at deanery level local level um, uh, in terms of being a woman in surgery in a male-dominated specialty well I think what Simon said about the face of the specialty changing is very true um, and it is going to become ine- inevitably over time um, a bit a bit more of a reflection of general society or that's what we that's certainly what we hope. Um, it can be difficult at times. You will come across attitudes which are not particularly ones that you might endorse, um, and sometimes you may have to take that further, you know, and that, that's something that hopefully the support structures around will facilitate. Um, and if, if you get exposed to things like bullying or harassment, whether you're male or female, it is important to flag up. It's difficult, um, but and thankfully. I think we're getting better at stopping it in its tracks now, mm. um, but um, but in general, even though it's a male-dominated foot field, um, I've, I've found it a, um, an enjoyable one to be part of.
2: And the number of female trainees is going up every year. Uh, we are no longer rock bottom in uh, the gender ratio. <laughs> that spot has been taken over by orthopedics once again. Yeah, um, yeah. But you have we to are be
0: better than orthopedics on some levels. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, we are,
2: however, still second from bottom apparently. Oh, no. So we need more female trainees um, applying yeah. uh, so that we can get off the uh, second from bottom. Yeah, and don't that.
0: don't be put off thinking that you can't have a family. You can't. It's not true. You can. All those things are absolutely possible. Um, and it will only be able to facilitate those things better by understanding it more and getting more women in, in surgery. And I think ultimately that will make it better for all the men and the women. Mm-hmm. We want a specialty where everybody can work well and everybody's enjoying themselves and giving their best. That's what we want. Um, uh, so, so don't let it put you off. If you want to do it, go for it. Okay, so we've got our final questions. I've tried to end with some lighter ones here. Okay, so um, what attributes do you have that you think is being helpful to being a cardiothoracic surgeon? Hit it, Simon.
2: There's any magic uh, attributes other than being able to do an operation from the moment you're born. Um, The ones that I think are very helpful are actually not the obvious ones. I think the key is persistence and patience more than anything else. Uh, because it's a long journey, it's a frustrating journey, and there'll be setbacks and periods when you wonder whether it's worth it. Uh, but what actually uh, gets you successfully to the end is is persistence and uh, not being daunted by your setbacks. Yeah. Uh, work, hand in hand with that is also important that you have a strong work ethic, uh, because you will have to uh, work long hours, you're going to have to try and stand up from the crowd, and uh, you're sometimes going to have to w- work hard and wonder what it's all for, but uh, with the combination of those two, uh, you'll survive, you'll thrive, and uh, and that's actually what will get you through in the end.
0: Yeah, um, uh, the word that I thought of when I said it was stamina. Mm. <laughs> I think it helps to have a bit of stamina. Um, I'm not sure how you get that, <laughs> um, but and persistence, stamina and persistence, because. Um, because it is a long road and physically, you're gonna be standing up for long periods of time as you've seen already, Cindy, and it, and it's quite tough sometimes to just keep going, um, uh, especially through long night shifts, um, and then another long night shift, uh, and then another long night shift <laughs> <laughs> after that. Um, mainly, I think, <laughs> bloody mindedness system yeah. is yeah. probably yeah. quite helpful. Um, okay, so our last question <laughs> is, Brilliant. Yes. Uh, surgery seems cool and fun. Thank you. Excellent. Might, clearly they've seen us working yeah. here as I'm cool and fun. Uh, but, but also seems like a massive effort. Is it worth it? What do you think?
2: Uh, well, first, I think do you think it's cool and fun? Well, that's all? the thing. I, I think this whole question <laughs> is true. It is cool <laughs> and fun. Okay, maybe not cool. It yeah. is fun. <laughs> and it was also a massive effort. And yeah. it is also definitely worth it. Yeah. Uh, after all that, uh, when you, when you get, see yourself improving, when you, uh, the first time you operate on a patient and you see them better afterwards, uh, there's no feeling quite like it. Uh, when you see someone in clinic beforehand and then after, and uh, they're, they're a different person, that's, it is uh, hugely rewarding. The difficulty of the process and getting in shouldn't put you off it. Uh, because ultimately the uh, training and the outcomes of it are hugely rewarding.
0: Yeah, I'd say the same. I'd say as well, I'm not sure about cool, um, <laughs> yes. know, but I can see you know it is. There's definitely some elements of what we do that, that that can can be pretty cool. You know, I
2: mean, the cardiothoracic national conference is a collection of massive nerds, <laughs> but really we would like to is. think we're cool. I,
0: I, mean, I mean, it would be nice <laughs> to pretend. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Grey's Anatomy may have slightly. I don't know. I think Grey's Anatomy's got cardiac surgery in it. I've not watched the whole thing. I think
2: they do everything. Do they no, do no, everything? Yeah. Oh, okay. Or well, maybe but it's the same can. person who does everything.
0: Oh, okay. Well, anyway. Anyway, maybe some TV series have <laughs> <Yeah>. misrepresented. <laughs> so misrepresented how good we actually yeah. look. Yeah, yeah, which you know is is not totally fair, but um, but it is fun, definitely um, at times, uh, most of the time. Um, it is an effort. I think it is a personal choice as to whether it's something you're willing to put the effort in. And whether it's something you can put the effort in, not everyone's gonna be able to. Some people are gonna have priorities that mean actually this is not an option for them. And that's okay. There's loads of other things that are really good out there. Um, and that's, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, but for me, it's been worth it. There's certainly times where I knew I would doubt it. I absolutely knew that. When I was, when I was going through all my training, I knew there'd be times that I would look back and think, oh my god, why am I doing this? I wish
2: i would be a radiologist. Yeah, why am I not a dermatologist?
0: Um, but yes, I would say it is definitely worth it. And ultimately, it's, it is the patients at the end of the day that you're doing things for, and it sounds a bit corny, but it's true, and that's what makes the difference um, when you know that something you've done has actually gone towards helping somebody else. That's a, that's a great thing to have as a job. Um, and in cardiothoracics, we, we get to do that on a regular basis. And, you know, sometimes people won't always get better. That's one of the things you need to understand in any sort of specialty. But most of the time they do. And most of the time it's really rewarding. Um, what do you think, Cindy? Any sort of final comments or questions from you? Anything that you've thought? No. Have you been put off from cardiothoracics <laughs> after <laughs> speaking to us? No. no. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, just to say again, uh, there will be the medical students' cardiothoracic um conference which will be at some point in october and november so people can find that out is there a facebook group that
1: you guys have yes yeah, so there's uh, the facebook group there's um the website as mm-hmm. well that you can go to mm-hmm. so there's loads of resources
0: brilliant um yep yeah, so that'll be advertised at some point in october november and we'll put a link in the show notes excellent
1: and how many sort of tickets are available for that is it so last year it was around 150 okay so, so there is you know. Yeah. Excellent. So there's plenty of opportunity yes. for people to <laughs> sign up for that.
0: Excellent. Oh well, thank you very much both of you. Fantastic work. <laughs> <You're welcome. laughs> and hopefully we've inspired the next generation of cardiothoracic surgeons. So thank you very much for listening and um, and please leave some comments and reviews that'd be very helpful. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>